Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. You know, what he's doing is really remarkable. He's on this uh, rocket ship and he's going to be telling us everything about it. We're going to be talking about building companies and also the way to think about it, whether it's a problematic company or an opportunistic company. Also, you know, why he decided to go the way that they did with their first uh, fundraise for his current company instead of looking at valuations, more looking at the people that were financing the operation, and then also how to go about building, scaling, and financing a company, as well as to how to think about accessing capital. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sandy Kemper. Welcome to the show. Thank you, my friend. Good to be here, Alejandro. Thank you. So originally from Kansas City. So tell us about, you know, how you got into the whole world of finance. You know, where did that interest, you know, like mature? Well, you know, interestingly, in Kansas City, it was a financial hub even from the beginning of the city because it was the, the place where all of the westward trails originated. The Santa Fe, the California, the Oregon Trail all came out of Kansas City. And, and the business of banking was born financing those pioneers as they moved from the Middle West to the West, pursuing their dreams. So the banks were here, uh, and I ran a bank here for a number of years that dates back to that very origin of, of its creation story being to enable capital to give to the pioneers so they could pursue their dreams as they moved west. So my my uh, my connection to finance is is long lived and uh, and somewhat interesting from that history. I mean, and 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 the bank that you were running, you know, quite impressive. You know, we're talking about a forty billion dollar bank today. You know, how was it like, you know, managing the operation of a bank like that? Because obviously that thing. Uh, that gave you, you know, like some insights, you know, as to how yeah. to build your current business today, too. I, I would imagine I'm, I'm one of the older founders you've probably um, interviewed. But in this case, I ran a bank uh, for almost, well, I didn't run it for 20 years, but I was I was there for nearly 20 years and uh, enjoyed very much understanding the business, understanding what worked, what didn't work. I mean, the challenge is really when you've got four or five thousand people, I think it's much more difficult to move the ship as rapidly as you would like. And so in some ways, when I retired from the bank and decided to go build technology and e-commerce and fintech companies, I was, uh, I was probably making it easier on myself because I was able to move into businesses where we could build the culture from day one. We could be nimble from day one. It would always be day one. It would never be, as it was in our company at the bank, year you know, 101. And that bank just celebrated its 100th anniversary. So that difficulty of moving something with that much historical baggage, even though I was the CEO of the bank, uh, was was pretty challenging. And so in many ways, I think that that drove me to want to create smaller, more nimble, more intimate companies where we could get things right, perhaps get things right from the beginning and stay on course throughout. Didn't have We didn't have to go back and burn the ships, if you will, because we were already united in our path. And I think larger corporations, older corporations struggle a little bit more with that. And one thing that uh, that is very interesting there, as you were alluding to it, over a hundred years, you know, the the bank really remarkable. Now, I guess, like, how do you deal too with adaptability for so many years? Like, there's obviously plenty of legacy systems, you know, and things and ways of doing things. So, how do you go about listening to the market and adapting, you know, the company 
at such a scale, you know, to be able to to be in parallel with what the customers are asking you. So I will say it's it's still a fantastic bank. My my brother's actually there. It does a great job uh, getting capital hands of businesses. It's grown very nicely, but yeah, there's there's generally take that bank out of the equation and just think about larger organizations. What what's it take? to be successful and be large. Well, I mean, it takes success. And we all know that failure is the mother of success. I, I have come to believe that success is the grandmother of failure. The inertial potential, the inertial momentum that comes with success leads to ossification or leads to entitlement. And you start thinking about where your parking place is or how big your office is or what your title is. And, and that, that is something that seeps into these large corporations and creates serious cultural issues. And I don't know that there's a way to solve for it because success, as I say, has its own inertial sort of the, 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 great, the great silver lining is you're successful and you've been successful and you've made money for the company and your shareholders. The, dark, the darkness inside that success is the inertial momentum that allows you to coast or allows you to think politically or allows you to wonder about your title. But I think so many great innovations obviously come from companies whose founders you've interviewed and finding those small companies innovative driving nimble not ossified not political not bureaucratic because they're still they're still struggling to make it and that struggle causes them to innovate and the lack of that struggle creates complacency so obviously you know you've done this for a while how do you go about embracing struggle i i think you have to constantly if you're if you're a startup brother, you're already embracing struggle. From day one, it's a struggle, and you become born to the struggle. Uh, as you create success or as you have some degree of success in your startup, it's moving, it's moving the goalpost. It's understanding that you have to create, even though you've had success, it's a small success. Even though we have, as an example, $2 trillion of, of accounts payable and accounts receivable on our platform here at C2FO, that's not, I mean, two trillion. I never thought I'd get to two trillion as a, as a CEO or a founder of this company. So two trillion is a drop in the bucket of the hundred trillion dollar global GDP. So you get to your two, the next goal is 10. And the next goal after that is 50. And how do you get all of the AP and all of the AR in the world on your platform? So I think, I think certainly more effective CEOs and leaders than I know how to create immense goals that are, that are both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. And it's that struggle to create outsized goals and outside out, outsized output and success that I think keeps companies where you have great leadership on that edge, always pushing, always wanting more, always growing and never being entitled, never being satisfied. So how was that transition from you, you know, for you on from going from the bank to all of a sudden building a e-commerce platform, especially doing so, you know, in England, you know, as well. I mean, it, it's quite the shift. Yeah, you know, it, it. I think the thing that was most difficult for me was I had become a little entitled myself. I mean, when you're, when you're CEO of a $20 billion company, you have lots of supporters and lots of staff and lots of comfort. I had become comfortable. And uh, that the, the, the move to a smaller company. I mean, there were there were five of us, four of us when we started, and uh, rolling up your sleeves and finding that muscle again. I had I had gotten I had gotten flabby, and I had become entitled myself. And so it was it was uh, into the deep end of ice water, waking up to realize 
that I had not been the reason of I had not been the reason for success of my bank. The inertial momentum had been the success, and now it was sink or swim in that icy water. And you better wake up, boy, because what you had before isn't what you have now. So that company ended up being Perfect Commerce. So what were you guys doing there? Well, same. I've always I've always had a passion. You know, I think lots of people feel the same way. But building things for the underdog, building things for the small business, the mid-sized business, and and maybe it's just overly romantic on my part, but but I think there's a huge market there, and I also think there's great nobility of cause. So e-commerce was the platform uh, we wanted to bring in this day and age. And you're too young to remember. So there were there were companies like Ariba and Commerce One, and basically they were selling to large corporations e-commerce platforms. And I got a little upset because. There wasn't a SaaS-based, but this was back in the, you know, late 1990s. So there was no SaaS anything, and and they were all behind the firewall enterprise solutions, and all the big companies were buying them. And I felt like it was an opportunity that was not afforded to small and mid-sized businesses because the enterprise price points for these software packages were just too damn high. So we became the first in those days. You call it sort of uh, what did we call it? ASP. Of of giant enterprise systems, so we bought the license. We broke it into thousands of different parts. We got permission from the enterprise seller to do that, and we sold ASP versions of it to all these small businesses around the Midwest and the East and the West. Our go to market was kind of interesting because our go to market was actually using banks as the distributor. So the thesis that we had was that finance is sort of the tail of the dog of commerce. Right. There's no reason for payment unless you have commerce and all finances is delayed payment over time or deferred over time. So we argued that banks should be in the act of creating commerce because the act of creating commerce would enable the finding of financial products. So we enabled, we guess I think we probably got to two or 300,000 small businesses on the platform. We had a thousand banks selling for us. And the thesis was very simple, right? If you own commerce, then you own payments. If you own payments, then you own finance. So how was it like? to see the company going through an IPO? I, you know, I, by that time, I had, I had gone. I had, we sold to someone who then, who then took it out and, and took it public on the European markets. Uh, bittersweet. Uh, there, were, you know, there, were, there were times when I was in sync with uh, my board, and there were times when I was out of sync with my board. And, and those times grew when I was out of sync. And I became out of sync enough that I became chairman emeritus, which basically means chairman to get the hell out of here. And uh, that was, so as I said, bittersweet. So, so in your case, you took a year off. Uh, I mean, you thought it was going to be, uh, you know, a certain amount. You know, uh, I mean, I don't know if it had an expiration date or not. Certainly for your wife, I understand that that was the case. But for you, you decided to retire. I mean, what, 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 what drove you to that decision? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I was, I, I, well, first, I left the bank to go build that e-commerce platform. You know, good, hard slog. We pushed that thing for six or seven years, super hard. I wasn't going to retire, but what I was going to do is take some time off. And, and to your point, I, I told my wife I'd love to take a year off. We have a ranch here in Kansas City. I work on the ranch and build fences and stretch barbed wire and take care of the, the cattle and the sheep and all the various critters on the place. And, and that lasted, I, I think it lasted about three months. I think I told you six. But by, by six, it was really very clear that I was not, uh, I was persona non grata on the ranch. My wife was ready for me to get the hell out of there and get back to business. So. We dreamed up a, a new business that was a private equity fund that invested in, you know, an unusual asset called fine art, and and we, we put together about a hundred million dollars in that fund, small private equity fund. 
but it was a very, very interesting first of its kind because we invested in fine art in the United States. We put the fine art into our investors' homes and then rotated it so they would all have exposure to the art, which was a hell of a lot of fun, but not terribly challenging. Uh, and so by that time, I was thinking about flaws in the financial structure and things that I'd learned when I was at the bank. And I'd gone on the board of BATS, which was a local uh, exchange here that was fantastic, but later sold to CBOE, the Chicago Board of Options and Exchange. And I'd learned about market structure. And I was beginning to wonder why you couldn't put together a marketplace for working capital. And that then, of course, gave birth to CQFO. So walk us through the sequence of events. How was that the incubation process like? Well, you know, there's the same advice I would give to a younger entrepreneur, a younger founder, or someone who wants to be a founder. To me, I learned so much being in the belly of the beast in the banking world. I learned what worked and what didn't work. I learned what the, the prohibitions are relative to capital and the need to underwrite differently because you've got FDIC insurance and you've got the regulatory burdens. And when I was on the, on the board of CBOE and on the board of BATS before that, they learned a lot about market structure and trading. I, I, I would argue, and maybe I'm, I'm completely all wet here, but I would, my advice to, to most young folks, uh, and I'm old, as I said, not older than you, I'm probably much older than most of your founders. My argument is to them, learn something first. And understand, because my view, you mentioned earlier, my view is that we tend to build problemistic companies or opportunities to solve big problems. Well, if you don't know the mainstream, if you don't know the traditional, if you don't know what's broken in the systems that exist today, you're not going to be able to build solutions. So the education that comes with being in those systems is fantastic. And, and I learned so much being in those systems that enabled me and, and the teams that we have now to build, build a company that solves for the problems of those antiquated, um, in this case, antiquated financial systems. So problematic versus opportunistic companies, especially now as, as we're talking about the incubation you know, of C2FO. What can you share about that? I think, for me at least, I've always, I've always liked to find a big problem that bothers the heck out of me. And, and if I can find other people who say, yeah, that's a big problem too, Maybe there's enough critical mass for us to put together a company and, and, and or you know, build a product and put together a company. So problem, people that agree with that problem, create a product versus opportunistic, which is, hey, I want to incrementally improve on X. Uh, I want to enable Y more effectively. I, I tend to want to blow things up and start completely new and different because I see such structural flaw in a system today. As an example, in the working capital world, around the world on any given day, businesses have plus or minus $40 trillion of accounts receivable on their books. So $40 trillion of money they're owed by their customers. Banks loan, and my bank loaned against those accounts receivable on that inventory. All the banks, all the supply chain finance, all the ABL, everything totaled in the world might be five trillion. So of the forty trillion dollars of AR that's out there, only five is being satisfied. And there's lots of reasons for it, but the primary reason is the introduction of an intermediary, a bank, creates credit risk. I have to underwrite the credit of that supplier. Now, if that supplier's big buyer pays the supplier early, based on what the supplier has billed 
It's been accepted. The big buyer says, yep, it works. I put it on my shelves or I've consumed it. I'm going to pay you in 60 days. My choice, if I'm, a, if I'm that supplier, is to go to a bank and borrow against that account receivable. Now, now with our market, that supplier can say, I'm not going to the bank and I want my money and I'm going to give an offer or a discount. I'm going to name my rates to give an incentive to that buyer to pay me early. When that buyer pays the supplier early, there is no credit risk. This whole thesis of risk underwriting of working capital is complete stupidity. It only exists because we introduce an intermediary, ABL and SCF, a bank, into the process, which is completely idiotic. The buyer has money. The supplier needs money. Well, the buyer can put the money into the bank and the bank can loan to the supplier. But again, that's colossally stupid. Why not just enable a marketplace where that supplier can request early payment from the buyer by using a rate or creating a rate in the marketplace to give incentive to the buyer to pay them early? That's what we do. And, and today, we're running at $100 billion of funding per year. And my, my five generations of my family in banking, and the bank's only $40 billion. We've been doing this for 10 years, and we're doing $100 billion a year, which is the better system. We are. And zero credit loss. We've done $300 billion in funding since inception, $100 billion in the last 14 months. Zero credit loss. Zero guarantees that personal guarantees or, or second mortgages or problems that that small business or mid-sized business has to experience with dealing with collateralization. Uh, it's just your money. Make an incentive to your buyer to get paid sooner and do it in a marketplace that's very low cost and very convenient. That's what we build. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of C2FO? How do you guys make money? So we share, and the, there's no charge for those suppliers who are on the platform. We have close to a million suppliers on the platform. Our go-to-market is very simple. We go get the biggest companies in the world to come to the platform and post all of their accounts payable. The accounts payable then are pushed to those millions of suppliers out there or million-plus suppliers that are out there. 
on our platform to show those suppliers what they're going to be paid by their buyer and when. The supplier can then, in two clicks of a two clicks of a mouse, order his cash or her cash online by giving the buyer an incentive. Call it a a fifty basis point discount. So instead of getting paid a hundred thousand, I get paid ninety nine thousand five hundred dollars tomorrow instead of getting paid a hundred thousand in thirty to forty days. That 50 basis point discount, the majority of that goes to the buyer, and we take a revenue share of that as our, our way of making money. And I guess, you know, I, I really love the book of uh, Simon Sinek, Everything Starts With Why. So what, what, what would you say is really the why that pushes you guys to get things moving? The why is because there are millions of businesses around the world, hundreds of millions of people employed by those businesses who do not have the capital to build their business and pursue their dreams. Our position is very simple. If we could create even half, if we could meet half of the demand of this capital that the suppliers have because the banks aren't there or they're, they're not able to get credit. Again, banks aren't, banks aren't evil. They're great. They're fantastic economic engines for the world's economy. But they have to risk underwrite. They have to think about risk. Eliminate the need for risk underwriting in a business that you can get those capital dollars to those businesses much more effectively at a lower cost do this with half of the opportunity in the world, we think we can create a 4 to 5% lift in global GDP. We think we can create 4 to $6 trillion of additional, of additional economic growth for the world just by enabling the flow of working capital without risk underwriting. So you have a broken intrinsic system where everyone believes that you have to risk underwrite. The only reason you need to risk underwrite is because you've introduced an intermediary called a bank. Instead, create a direct exchange between those who have money, the buyers, the large corporates, and all of their suppliers. Do price discovery where the supplier can name their rate. I want to get funded at 50 basis points. I want to be funded at 60. I want to be funded at 30. Based on their needs for that capital, clear that market daily, move capital from the buyer to the supplier at the rates that that supplier names, and enable those millions of businesses to grow and employ more people and increase the world's GDP. It's a super simple why. Why? Because it's not, and the problem is it's not happening today, right? With the system as we've described, the new system can solve for this. And if you do it right, you do it right, it's not just $6 trillion of GDP growth, it's increased peace. It's more prosperity because more people are employed, more people are able to have jobs, more businesses are growing. Half the world's population is employed by small and mid-sized businesses. Half of the world's GDP is generated by small and mid-sized businesses, and yet these businesses are starved for capital. The number one inhibition for growth in a small business is access to capital. Well, let's solve that. Let's create capital that's risk-free. Let's create capital that is name your own price. Let's create capital that's easily accessed on a marketplace like ours, and let's solve this damn problem. That's, that's the problem that we're solving. So we're a problemistic company, and the why is because People are suffering, jobs are not created, economies are stagnant and not growing because capital is not available. I love it. Now, in terms of um, capitalizing the business, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Well, building a two-sided marketplace on a global scale ain't cheap. Uh, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had been smart enough when we started this. We were lucky, really lucky as a, like literally a seven-person seven firm and uh, this giant retailer in the United States called Costco who I think is the third or fourth largest retailer in the world now, gave us a chance. Uh, they, 
they said, we'll, we'll do this. We love it because we want to give capital to our suppliers at a rate that they name that's really advantageous for them. We know that a strong supply chain makes a strong Costco. We know that a strong supply chain with lower costs creates lower costs for our consumers, our, our customers. So they were all in. Well, it was great. It was a fantastic sale. And God, we're still so very grateful for them. They're still one of our great longtime customers. But of course, on day one, when you're serving Costco, their suppliers are all over the world. So we had to enable the platform to be global on day one. So building a global two-sided marketplace is expensive and takes a long time. The long, long answer, I wish we didn't have to raise as much, but the long answer to your, the short answer to my long explanation is uh, over $400 million has been raised. Now, I know that the first um, you know, initial stages of capitalizing the business you know, came from really looking strategically, not at the valuation, but more at the perhaps the funder and the network or the value that they would bring. So why did you guys you know, think that Union Square Ventures was the right player for this? And how did you go about you know, filtering you know, the investors towards landing Union Square Ventures? So for, thank you, uh, we were first very fortunate, very lucky to have a number of investors in our first round looking at us. Uh, and my advice to, to any founder starting out is, is, it may sound very counterintuitive and counterproductive, but for me, uh, it certainly worked well. We did not take the highest valuation. Union Square was not the highest. My lesson from that has been reinforced over time because Union Square, of course, the reputation of Union Square Basically, your B round and your C round were already done as long as you didn't screw up the company. My, my statement now is to most founders, take the lowest valuation you can stomach from the highest quality funder you can find. And Union Square, you asked how we filtered. Tremendous experience in, in coaching and working with companies like ours. I needed, I needed to know they understood B2B. I needed, understood they under, needed to know they understood FinTech. They clearly did. And most importantly, a great cultural fit, a great personal fit between the Union Square uh, leader and uh, and me. So find, finding finding that personal connection with an entity that really understands the business that can help you build the business. And they, you know, one one of our other giant retail customers, uh, large company that starts with an A, uh, was brought to us by Union Square because they introduced me to a fellow named Jeff. And Jeff uh, introduced me to the CFO, who introduced me to the treasurer, and the treasurer was therefore positively inclined to say yes to the platform. And we, we won that deal again because of the connections and because of the, of the reputation of Union Square. So lowest valuation you can stomach, highest quality funder you can find. And how do you define quality in a funder? What does that look like? Well, that's what I said. It was, you know, the cultural fit, the reputation, the portfolio, the experience, like making sure that they understand your biz. There, there's probably a lot of businesses out there that can get lucky and get money from any firm they want, but a deep understanding of the tech, a deep understanding of finance, a deep understanding of what it's like to grow at that stage. And then, as I said, you know, a, a great personal connection to your, uh, to your partner at the firm. Now, for you guys, you know, as, as you are, you know, let's say, let's say, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of C2FO is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, it, it, this sounds really, really silly, but I, would be, I, would, I wouldn't be there because it's going to take up. I'm, I'm old and somebody else will be there, but you solve it. Uh, somebody, somebody from this shop is going to be in Stockholm uh, accepting the Nobel Peace Prize because the amount of 
peace that's come through the prosperity that we've created on this platform. The world would employ millions more people. The GDP would have increased four to six percent. More food on the table for workers in countries all around the world that today have broken financial systems. Our system in the United States, in some ways, is kind of ironic that we started in the United States because it's, the, it's like it's like Churchill said about democracy: it's the worst system in the world except for all the others. Everybody likes to complain about the banking system in the United States. It's the worst system in the world except for all the others. Every other nation's much more screwed up. And if you want to get into really screwed up countries, you go to developing nations or emerging nations. And, and the lack of banking, the lack of capital is, is diabolical. Uh, so I see an outsized benefit for emerging economies who embrace platforms like ours to get capital to businesses to increase prosperity, increase peace, and increase their GDP. So if we look at, again, these are fantastic nations. I, I, I don't, I, I certainly want to be very thoughtful. We're so lucky to be in the United States and to, 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 to as I said, you know, been born here, et cetera. Uh, I don't mean to cast aspersions in any direction. I think when I say emerging nation, I think some people take umbrage at that. But, but let's just use the, the traditional vernacular. As an emerging nation uh, like Mexico, an emerging nation like India, an emerging nation, uh, a smaller emerging nation, Egypt or otherwise, the systems that we have in place in those countries, our platforms in India, our platform in Mexico, our platform in places other than the Western European states and the United States, we see two to three times more utilization. So the need is even greater in these developing and emerging nations. Right? The systems haven't been built as well as they could have been financially. And now, kind of like telco in Africa, you don't need to put up hardwares. You don't need to build traditional financial systems. Let's just go straight to marketplaces for working capital. Let's, let's jump over all the silliness of intermediation and risk underwriting. Let's just create from day one the ability for people to get the capital they damn well need at a price that they name without any sort of risk underwriting. So that's, we were just, we were just very fortunate to be given a license to be one of the national platforms in India. And there are a couple others. We're much bigger than all the others, even what we do inside C2FO in India. And they decided, the government decided that they also wanted us to, to be in a position where we were part of the official national platforms. Modi and team have to create 100 million new jobs in India between now and 2030. There is no way to do that without getting capital to small and mid-sized businesses because they employ 65% of the people in India. Job creation is not going to come from, the, from the, the biggest and the brightest large companies. Sure, there's going to be some, but the vast majority is going to come from the smalls and the mids. Those smalls and the mids, those businesses that, that aren't at that enterprise level, they are starved for capital. And we can solve that problem, which is why we've become a national platform for working capital in India. Uh, we hope to do the same thing in Mexico and other nations. So we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Let's say that um, I was to put you in a time machine and uh, I was to bring you back in time. And I, I'll make you younger here. So I'll, I'll bring you back to the moment that, um, you know, maybe you were thinking about doing something of your own. Maybe to that moment where you were, you know, transitioning from the bank and then thinking about like doing something, you know, uh, from scratch, you know, uh, Let's say you had the opportunity of being right there at that moment with that younger self and being able to give that younger Sandy one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? 
and lo- lots of pieces of advice because boy when i was there i was i i'm still super stupid and back then i was just colossally stupid uh i you know everyone sort of says a trite thing it, it's going to be okay i do re- i do remember you struggle like that when you start a business. I wondered whether I'd be able to keep the house or whether I had to sell the house. I wondered if my kids would be able to go to the school down the street. Uh, I worried about reputation risk because I had been a successful banker and now I was in the deep end of this ice water without my inertial momentum. And maybe I wasn't that good. Maybe maybe it, my only success had come from the success of the previous corporation. So I'd, I'd say silence the self-doubt uh, for every moment when you, when every moment that you you cut yourself open to, to look at what might not be such a pretty side of who you are, what you can do. You should also spend time thinking about what could be and, and to try to balance the fear with the op, op, optimism of what could be if it all works. Not to be pie in the sky or high, head in the sky, but, but, but to be thoughtful and not beat yourself up too much when you have those failing moments. And I had huge amounts of failing moments uh so i would have uh, that i would have done and the other the other one i would say is um uh, listen listen more I, I think i think i learned to listen as i struggled so much to make the adjustment from an entitled ceo running a big company to an entrepreneur who was afraid of losing his house and uh, whether he'd be able to get his kids in school uh, and i learned i learned a hell of a lot of humility uh, that I should have had to begin with, but I had lost because I had been, I'd been in an inertial beach that had too much success. Wow. Very profound. Sandy, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Just Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y at C2FO.com. Easy enough. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Mucho gusto, mi amigo. Gracias para todo. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.